0: copy of God's Word, I encourage you this morning to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to read just one verse with you. We'll be referring to other verses in this chapter, but it is verse 21 that in some ways more of a springboard into our thoughts this morning, but as I say, we'll look at other verses 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Amen. Let's pray. Seek the Lord. Father, we, we know not what a day may bring forth. Give us grace to humble ourselves in dust and ashes, and day by day to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Grant us more and more the unction of Thy Spirit, that young and old, whatever condition of life may be reflected by any particular individual that's here this morning, They would know how to give of their best to the Master. Teach us thy ways. Break us where we need to be broken. And make our lives count how brief they are, but make them count for the honor of Christ. Empty me, Lord. Give me grace to throw myself upon thy mercy today. May the Holy Ghost come upon preacher, and upon the congregation in a very notable fashion. Extend thy kingdom, then, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just yesterday I learned of the news of the death of a man by the name of Clifford Black. I met Clifford probably about 18 years ago for the first time and he was one of those characters that you just never forget. Once met, never forgotten. There are people like that. No doubt some of such people come to your mind. He was one such individual. 28 years ago he was diagnosed with MS. And with that diagnosis and some of the indications of what that might mean to him and for him, he got before the Lord and simply cried out to the Lord. And I remember him telling me about this, that if the Lord would raise him up, then he would give the rest of his life to sharing the gospel. Well, the Lord did raise him up, touched him in a way that the MS never had any impact upon his life, and he gave himself to evangelism. He, in one year, about one year, 97 through 98, summer of probably about 12 or 13 months, he launched a tract distribution effort and tried to get all the help that he could, and over the course of those 12 to 13 months, they distributed 1.1 million tracts. This is just a reflection of the kind of heart that he had He would knock on doors. He would visit places in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And for those of you old enough to remember the troubles, you'll understand some of this. But he would go to places in Belfast where Protestants, for the most part, would not dare to tread. When I first met him, he was giving his testimony. I'll never forget it because it had that that profound sense that the Lord was there. And he had a simple, joyful zeal for the Lord. And he lived out that way for his years. I had lost touch with him. I can't remember really the last time I, I spoke to Clifford. It was a long time ago. But in July, past, he started to feel unwell, and eventually he would go to the doctor, and he was told that he had cancer. Despite knowing what God had done for him in the past, being fully aware of the Lord's ability to touch him, to heal him, to remove illness in a somewhat miraculous way, it seemed in this case, in this scenario, he he just knew that this was his time. So he made his arrangements, and he passed away on the 8th of September. He was 56 years old. 56. But for Clifford Black, his was a life well lived. Not a perfect man, none of us are, but a life well lived. Some of you know of Crown College, you're aware of, of that school and the connection there. And some of them have been sent over the past number of years as missionaries to England, really. Going to Europe uh, with a a sense of this need for missionary endeavor. And he helped them with that. He was extremely supportive of them financially and in many other ways. And it was good to see at the funeral service uh, many of them come, the missionaries and their wives. They came, they sang a couple of pieces, and some words were spoken as well. A broad influence, a big impact, a life well lived. I want us to give consideration to that theme over the course of the next number of weeks. Lives well lived. I want us to think about the characters that we are given in Scripture, flawed as they may be, yet to see that you can write over them, here was a life well lived, imperfect, full of shortcomings, but well lived. And I've drawn your attention more as a, a matter of introduction this morning to this text, 2 Timothy 2 verse 21, because you see this, this desire, this longing that the Apostle Paul has for Timothy, that, that if he's to live the way he ought to live, it, he will be as a vessel unto honor. His life will be a vessel unto honor. Paul's addressing a minister of the gospel, it is a pastoral epistle, it's Addressing someone that's in the works, so to speak. And the temptation is when you come to First and Second Timothy and Titus, if you're not a pastor, then you immediately imagine there's no application for me. It's not addressing me. I'm not the, the, the person that's in mind in the text, so it's, there's nothing really that it can say to me. But this would be wrong. Yes, indeed. It has particular application to those that are pastors. Paul is writing to Timothy, a man that is set apart for a particular purpose, given a calling that he would shape the lives of God's people. And the whole purpose of that, shaping that his instruction week after week, day after day, whatever way or form that instruction comes, it is shaping their lives to the purpose that they would have lives that are well lived. I mean, that's really the heart of it. It's not just to make you feel better, if that's why you're here this morning, I, I need a little pep talk to feel better. Well, I, I hope you, in some way, the Lord ministers to you so you're at least spiritually in a better frame of mind, but that could be sometimes being in the dirt, recognizing your sin, repenting and thankful for the Spirit of God that works to point out our, our sins that need to be repented of. The goal isn't about aiming purely for the emotions, it's the, it's the transformation of the life, you read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and following it, Paul there speaks of this ministry of instruction, the pastoral calling which is to shape the lives of men and women. God has given a body of truth in the Bible which is to be preached in order to unify the lives of believers into a common likeness. When I say common likeness, it's not to indicate that we're all to become personality clones. We're all to be the same. That's definitely not the case. But But there is to be this this constant ploughing up in all our hearts and lives that reflects some kind of harmony about what we're meant to be. So Paul can say to those at Philippi, for example, in Philippians 4 9, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. You, you can't be Paul, but, but those things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me do them, take them to heart. As an apostle, as a missionary, as a pastor, he calls the whole church, Follow me. And it didn't matter what you were, he would say the same to the merchant, to the carpenter, to the teacher, to the laborer, to the politician. They're all to follow him insofar as he follows Christ and reflects the foot of the Spirit. This, this is he is not shy to do. But as I say, it's not to s- suggest for one moment that we are all then to be exactly like Paul. I mean, if that's the mentality we adopt, then we're all going to feel. We're all going to feel like we fall short. We're like the, you know, the elephant that looks at the monkey climbing the tree and gets all upset because he can't climb the tree. But he wasn't made to climb the tree. That's not his purpose. It's not why he's there. But he has a role, and every Christian has a role. They have their place. And and everyone can have a life well lived amidst all the variations in how those lives are lived. So Joshua can't be Moses, and Solomon cannot be David, and Elisha cannot be Elijah, and Andrew cannot be Peter, and Timothy cannot be Paul. But each man, by the unfilling of the Spirit, is to use his gifts... And in essence, his life to embody and share the truth. And it's teaching that's foundational to this. So when the Apostle is writing to Timothy here in this chapter in context, without getting too bogged down, he's advising Timothy to keep himself from the corrupting influences of false teachers. Look at verse 16. Shun profane and vain babblings. For, these, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And he speaks there, he names too in verse 17 Hymenaeus and Philetus. And again, their, their, their doctrine, they're saying that the resurrection is, is past already. This, 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 is, this is impacting, this is changing the teaching, which changes then how the man of God instructs people, which results then in an impact in their lives so paul 's saying to Timothy you can 't you can't fall into this verse twenty two flee also youthful lusts I mean you're, 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 your whole purpose is to help people, and so you must again go back to verse twenty one if a man therefore purge himself of these that these is the, is the false teaching that 's just to give you some idea of what these are purging yourself of all bad influences because You need to be a vessel unto honor, you need to be one that is able then, meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work, so that then you can in turn help others. That includes then fleeing youthful lust, which isn't just what we immediately imagine, the kind of temptations and sexual sins that may come to mind, but all sins that are, really you can put in, immature lusts. The things that are inclined to be reflected in the immature mind. Pride, unbelief, hatred, being contentious, murmuring, complaining. All of that is reflecting immaturity. Let all those things flee from them, Timothy. Get away from them, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So you're living in a community... In a covenant community, here is how to live, follow righteousness, embody Christ, and live to the glory of your God. So as I say, in order to help you, and help us all, that at the end of our time, and how short it is, that it can be honestly said it was a life well lived. We're going to traverse through characters in the Scripture where I believe we can, we can glean some very helpful instruction. But before we do that, again, let's, let's just give some consideration generally to lives well lived and note a number of things this morning. First, a life well lived requires viewing your life as a steward. A life well lived requires viewing your life as a steward. Back up to verse 2 of this chapter. Now, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now, I have illustrated this and emphasized this at other times, but let's just, let's just recognize that this is part of a life well lived. It is stewardship. Stewardship. A whole spirit of stewardship that fills the heart. And stewardship in a particular fashion, we often think of stewardship confined to the material, to the practical, to our finances, to our resources. But stewardship here and in other places reflects that it's much broader than that. And in this particular case, we have the sense of, of Timothy's calling to steward the truth. The things that thou hast heard of me, muse on them, keep them to yourself, make them to be a benefit to you, live your life, insulate it from the world, be a monk, cut yourself off from the world, try to be as holy as you can live or satisfy your desires whatever way you want. It doesn't really matter how you engage with the rest of the world. just, Just take what I have told you and live in the way that's most pleasing to you. That's not the point, and you can see that. That's, that's not it. You must steward the things that you've been taught. The knowledge you have brings a sense of calling of stewardship. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Look for faithful men and commit that truth to them to the purpose that they will then perpetuate the cycle. That truth that enables people to live lives well to the glory of God may be perpetuated through the generations. So parents, you have a stewardship responsibility. You don't just feed your children, you, you, you nurse them in the truth. You steward the things that you've been taught. It is right for you to reflect upon the good things that you have learned from your parents or your grandparents or other older individuals in your lives. It is right for you to constantly be filling the reservoir. My, my own wife at the minute is going through uh, some of the podcasts of Elizabeth Elliot. They're just some lectures that she obviously taught years ago and they've been compiled by I think one of her granddaughters and put into a kind of podcast, and she's listening to them. And it's it's full of just good old-fashioned, down-to-earth, you know, just where the rubber meets the road, practical advice of womanhood, being a mother, and all the rest of it. Of course, the intent of that is to obviously build her up so she lives her life well and then she can impart it to our daughters. Maybe at times you have to change things slightly or you need to alter it or you say, well, I wouldn't quite go there, but that's a good point. And you, you do that with the truth. But the reason you do it is so you live your life well for the glory of God and then you can impart that to others. Stewardship. Stewardship of knowledge. I think this is important for us to to grasp because relatively speaking, I I think that here the people I meet you're 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 well instructed. The question is, are you imparting what you know as best as you can? Are you? Are the things the Lord has taught you going to die with you? I mentioned this before. I kind of plug in the idea again, and I may have to uh, take this a little further and try to develop some way of of uh, um, prompting this and encouraging this more. But the, the simple, the simple thought of those of you who, you know, you're you've. Whatever age, I hate putting an age on it. But but you know, when you start to get to a point when you're kind of entering the, the settling phase of life, you know, you're, you're you've done your study, call you're not doing exams anymore, and you're you're starting to get things together. That is the time that you start picking up the phone or texting someone and say, Hey, do you want to go to co- for coffee? Talking to them, pouring into them, encouraging them. You're not trying to radically transform their life, but, but you can ask and talk and encourage, and, and this this is something the whole body can do. And the whole body ought to do. I know some of you may feel I have nothing to say, but that's not true. It's patently false. We all have something to share. Biblical stewardship is all I am and have on the altar in response to all Christ is and did on the cross. So it enters in every area. And this is part of it. So when I think of all the preparation... Involved in teaching a class and, and all the other things that I'm learning in the process of teaching the class. And I think, well, you know, it's, uh, you have all these other things to do and time is precious. And uh, all sorts of things go through your mind and through the mind of the session and everything else. But, but, but then there's, there's this. There is this. There is a calling to impart, there's a calling to prepare, there's a calling to train. Now the seminary is a particular kind of narrow emphasis of that, and uh, Timothy essentially has been called to make sure you do this. You raise up faithful, that is men who will carry on the work that you're engaged in, the way I've poured into you, Timothy, make sure you do the same. And that's, that's not the case. Paul didn't take everyone with him as he took Timothy. It's a very narrow kind of goal. This, this, This person's going into ministry. He has gifts and skills that need to be tested to the end with the hope and with the prayer that this man will then be the same kind of person that is instructing with the truth and helping others, then amidst all their various callings, to live a life well to the glory of God. But we all must be doing it. You're a steward, Christian. The good steward understands the implications of Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. I belong to Him. Everything, every moment, every day, I am His. So everything belongs to God. Life, truth, strength, time, intellect, stuff, everything. It's all God's. Job was a good steward. We will look at him in the course of this series, God willing. He stewarded the physical things. He worked hard. He provided jobs for people. He sustained his family. We're told that he was the greatest of all the men of the East. But he also stewarded every part of his life and home. He was a steward of his own heart and all its corruptions. We're told that he was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Later on, we're told of him saying, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid and here's a man who's stewarding every part of his life. A man who's wealthy beyond comparison relative to everyone else. And no doubt the, the young woman would be glad to throw themselves at his feet. And he's, he's saying, no, no, I can't even look upon him. And I, must, I must steward then every aspect of my being. He stewarded the spiritual needs of his family. He offered sacrifices for them, praying for them. So, stewardship. A life well lived requires viewing your life as a steward. I am stewarding everything, every single thing. It is to be seen in the context. I'm to live my life to the glory of God. That's how to live it well. I steward everything. Secondly, a life well lived requires viewing your life as a soldier. Viewing your life as a soldier. Verse 3 of this chapter. Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Again, he's a pastor. In one sense, he's at the forefront of the battle, and he needs a mentality that is akin to being a soldier. But we are all soldiers. We all are soldiers. And we are called to understand this. Obviously, you go through the Scriptures, some are very prominently, examples of of being a soldier. You you have names like Caleb, Joshua, David. Others aren't really known for being soldiers, but when duty calls, we see the Spirit in them, like Abraham. When he hears news that Lot has been taken, he he immediately rises man. He has made preparation. He has stewarded his household, preparing them should the day come. And, And it's like other things. Some preparations we make in the hope that we never have to use them. But here he is. He is prepared as men, he has weapons, they're all laid out. Everyone knows their place, and when lot is taken, he's ready to go and engage in battle. Every Christian is called to be a soldier. Soldiers are prepared. Ready to fight at a moment's notice. Soldiers are disciplined, ordering their lives by routine. Soldiers are loyal, obeying the voice of their commander. Soldiers are unashamed, wearing their uniform with pride. Soldiers are guardians, protecting the weak. Soldiers are team players, battling for a cause bigger than themselves. Soldiers are selfless, prepared to die to achieve the objective That's the Christian life. So every Christian is called to put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6. Not to look pretty. (laughs) You don't put on the armor of God to stand there like some kind of spectacle in a museum. Right? It's for a purpose. And we should have no problem praying like David Blessed be the Lord my strength which teacheth my hands to war my fingers to fight. And I'm musing on that and saying, Lord, help me in that. Teach, teach my hands to war, my fingers to fight. You look at the life of David. You think of all the battles. But the greatest battles he faced we spiritual. Warfare came easily to David. Winning the spiritual battle every time was where he was taken out. It's where at times he fell short. So you're a soldier, and if you don't realize this, you're, you're, you're well, a man who's... A, Called to be a soldier, but he doesn't know he's a soldier. Well, he's not in the he's not in the battle. He doesn't even turn up. <laughs> Never mind, engage in the warfare. And so we don't want to be undisciplined, unloyal, self centered, self seeking. That will not result in a life well lived. Thou therefore, oh, do you hear your Lord Jesus speak to you, Christian? Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Don't be easily put to flight. Don't be like the children of Ephraim, armed and carrying bows, but they turn back in the day of battle. Endure hardness. Have that sense of resolve and commitment that will keep you in the battle, even though time's maybe tough and we are living in tough times it is not easy to be a committed christian today and some of you have family members that make it difficult for you i mean they do not in any way make it easy for you to be a committed christian they would love to see you fall or to soften and be less committed But you're a soldier. You are a soldier. Thirdly, a life well lived requires viewing your life as a sower. As a sower. Verse 6 of this chapter. The husbandman, or the farmer, that laboureth must be first partaker of the fruits. If you have a margin, I think it helps. This is one of the cases definitely where the margin helps with the understanding. The idea is laboring first must be partaker. The sense is he must labor first if he's going to be partaker of the fruits. The translation's a little awkward there, but I believe that's the sense of it. That in laboring first, then he can be a partaker of the fruits. Now, now farmers, I mean, it's not a prestigious employment, is it? Really? (laughs) I mean, when we step back for a moment and think of its significance and importance, I think we can all see that, but we don't really think of the you know, you think of the historic kind of ways in which soldiers are decorated and, and think of all the kind of uh, ways in which either recognized even today. But no one does that kind of thing for the farmer. I mean the farmer, the lowly farmer. And yet, what a work it is. The farmer epitomizes the one who is willing to labor. Before he ever enjoys the fruit of his labor, he epitomizes that sense of steadfast endurance in work with little present reward, believing that hard work over time will reap a harvest. Now, this is an important skill that is easily lost today because we want everything quickly. We want it all really fast we, we we want we want to sow the seed today and then see it sprout tomorrow. <laughs> you ever do that with children, you ever try to grow something, and you put the little seed in, you water it, and you take care of it, and every day they go and they look for it. <laughs> Why is it not growing? It takes time. it takes time, and so we must be like we must be like the farmer we must be. Like the husbandman, willing to labor before we ever partake of the fruits. We need to be taught this. Timothy needed to be instructed in this. Every Christian needs to get this because we have a tendency to quit if we do not experience immediate reward or gratification. But the man of God, the woman of God, the person who has a life well lived will have perhaps long periods. Long seasons of apparent fruitlessness. He is to be a sore. No one heralds the sore, no one makes much of the sore, no one appreciates the sore, no one thinks much about it. perhaps told you before, of one of the men in the church in Port Lincoln in Australia. And he was, I think he had just kind of finished writing the history of his family from the, he was fourth generation farmer that had had come to South Australia. And he he had pulled together all the data, everything that he knew about his family and the beginnings of the farm and all the rest of it. And he had uh, three or four daughters, I can't remember, so there was no one to naturally hand the farm down to, so he ended up selling it. But, but he was telling me some of the details, it, it, like what it was like to come there, to that part of Australia, and to start a farm. I mean, I could see it. It didn't take a whole lot of imagination, because there were still areas that we drove through and passed through on our ways to on our way to various meetings and churches and so on, where they were just barren. I mean, barren. I mean, just barely anything grows. Rocks and just packed soil. And he's talking about you know the, the year after year labor of breaking up the ground, removing the rocks, pulling out the whatever vegetation could grow in that environment. And I, I go, this is. You have to be a certain kind of person to go across the world and decide that you're going to try and make something of this. It's just barren land with a beating sun, little irrigation, and you're just, we're going to try and make something of it. It takes a certain kind of tenacity of resolve. And I'll tell you what, the kind of person that recognizes the real the real reward of this work will never be seen in my day. The farm was eventually sold for millions. but It was worth nothing. Essentially. When his great-grandfather, whatever, had first arrived there. And that's the kind of mentality that is needed in God's work. God honors that faithful labor, just laboring and laboring and laboring. And we are swamped with so much. I mean, in terms of, I mean, you don't maybe read it or are aware of it the way I might be, but you talk about pastoral leadership books and spiritual leadership books. It is all really about fast... Hastening the results. I mean, that's the goal. The book that says how to get success after you're dead. I mean, that just won't sell. I mean, no one's interested in success after you're gone. That tells you that you you might see some work in the third generation, long after you're forgotten about. It won't sell. It's like, how do you hasten it? How do you speed it up? We have no no patience long labor, plowing and plowing and sowing and plowing and sowing and continually, Noah-like, 120 years, apparently no fruit to his ministry except for the fact if he hadn't done what he did and God hadn't used him in the way he had, you wouldn't be here. The harvest of his work is in the ongoing existence of humanity. Abraham labored in the promise that he would ha- be a father to many nations. Never sought. But the harvest did come and it is still. Joseph was given a vision that he would reign over his entire family, but it took 13 years of Egyptian slavery and imprisonment to prepare the ground for such service. Moses had a sense of calling to deliver the Hebrews, but God ended up making him spend 40 years in the desert before he could be used in such a ministry. This isn't this isn't what we like. But the husbandman that laboreth must first be partaker of the fruits. If he is going to partake of the fruits, he must first labor. That is inescapable. So we will continue to formulate our ways of fast-tracking success. I mean, it's in every area, isn't it? Isn't it? I'm, I'm sure some of you in education could tell me about how there are certain areas, there are certain jobs, certain qualifications, certain careers. It used to take this amount of time, but there's some online degree that's available out there that can fast-track it to you in six months. I mean, I- I'm guessing that that's there. There's a market for it, for sure. <laughs> yes, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see the you know everyone wanting to hire the civil engineers who have, instead of Seven years of training and whatever else. He, 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 got a, he got his degree in six months online. Yes, we'll hire you to build the next bridge that everyone has to cross over. No, no, some things take a long time. Men want to go to the battle before they've trained in the barracks. They want to teach before they've been taught. They want authority before they've ever been subordinate and such people, of course, are very easy prey for the devil. They put such weight on rapid returns that they're easy to bribe, Easy to bribe. So they're constantly shifting. They're all over the place. They're not stable. They're not consistent. They're weak as water, taking the shortest, easiest, and most convenient path instead of God's path. And I know you, you can read the book of Acts. You can read the book of Acts and it appears that success came easily. But don't forget, The book of Acts is a book you can read in, I don't know, say, I'm going to guess, certainly 90 minutes thereabouts, probably you can read through the whole book. Totally guessing there, but it wouldn't take a long time. And you've decades packed in. These are events that are all compressed in. You know, there's not a whole lot to say in the fact that they they labored and labored and labored and labored and toiled and toiled and toiled. It's just the little pieces of information but there's all this toil, and labor, and heartache. You don't, you don't read of the, the weeks of journeying that Paul had to make and the, all the laboring within certain cities that had to take place. You don't read any of that, or very little of it. It's a dense record of the work of the Spirit when he was evidently working. But he was also working in times when it, things were quiet, So Paul knows this. Paul knows this. He is not a man who saw easy, rapid success. Otherwise, he wouldn't be saying things like Galatians 6.9, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. We don't have to be exhorting those in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15.58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord." This is important. This is so crucial. The book of Proverbs drives us home as well. This ongoing labor, the kind of farmer vision. Farmer's vision. I mean, you see it, parents, you, you, you know, you have to keep this in mind. Children are sitting before you and you... You you instruct and you teach and you counsel, you advise, you discipline, you organize, you everything that you do. And at times, you is is there any progress being made? Are they even listening to me? Do they hear the words that I speak? Will there be ever a day when this finally, this finally is manifested? Where I can see them taking on board the things they're being taught. And, and you just have to labor and not grow weary and not give up and not think to yourself that it's in vain. It's not. It is not. It's the farmer's labor. It's the ongoing labor. <laughs> yes, Parenting. Teaching, even you teachers, you know what it's like. Many of you, in all, all sorts of other areas, you could you could apply the same thing. I'm just not aware of it. It's that this this is consistent labor? Certainly in business, most businesses are like that. You see some new success, some some meteoric rise of a business or individual, and you think, wow, you know. But behind that is the years of grind, in most cases. Fourthly, a life well lived requires viewing your life as a student. You must view your life from the perspective as a student. Verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy, you're never going to get to the point where you stop being a student. So embrace it. I don't want to belabor this because obviously in the context this brings us back to the Scriptures time and time again and we'll be seeing this through some of the lives that we'll be looking at. But the world may see you as a master but never ever believe, never believe the story they tell. You're the student. And while you maintain posture of a student, you'll be fine. As soon as you think you're now the master, that's when your demise begins. Study. Study to show thyself approved unto God. That is necessary. Constant labor. Just keep working. Constantly studying and studying and studying. Yes, for the preacher, but for every Christian, for every Christian, the the most dangerous place you can get to is imagining you have all the answers now. You've got life worked out and you've had Bill Gothard tell you how to live life in every precise detail. And you think, well, I've memorized all the application there. I've imbibed all the material and I just have to follow that path in every way. And you you don't grow anymore. There's no study. There's no nuance. Study. Constantly study. Constantly being God's book. It's an investment in yourself as well as others. It's an investment in yourself. It is preservation of your own soul. It is a recognition that I need God's mind continually. I need to be studying the Lord, His Word, everything that He reveals. I need to know more of Christ. I need to know more of His mind. I need to know more of His will. Every one of us have had those points where something seems so clear to us that this is right and then time passes and it gets nuanced and you realize, you know, there are other things to consider there. So everything appears so dogmatic, so clear, so black and white, so cut and dry. And Certainly there are things that are cut and dry, but there are many areas where we thought we, we knew absolutely or someone said to us, it's always this. And then you study more and you realize... That's a very dangerous, narrow perspective that can wreak havoc on people's lives looking at it that way. So you constantly study. Psalm 1, what's the key? Studying the Word. Joshua 1, what's the key for Joshua's success? Studying the Word. When Deuteronomy 17 speaks to those in leadership, foreshadows the day, or foresees the day, rather, of there being a king in Israel, what's, what's the advice? Write out your own copy of the law. What is that but a forced form of study? That the man gets to a point where he's anointed to be king of the nation, and he is called to write out the law. This is so he doesn't come to it with preconceived ideas Or thinking that he has it all figured out. He he has to get back into the Word. Writing out his own copy of God's Word. Finally, a life well lived requires viewing your life as a servant. Verse 24. The servant of the Lord must not strive. Servant of the Lord must. This is so instructive. You're to be a servant of God. And it's to have a certain type of frame. You're not to be a contentious person. You're to be gentle unto all, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Yes, even when you're dealing with the difficult individuals, you deal with them in meekness. And there's obviously certain direct application here of the context of dealing with someone who's wayward, but there's this general spirit of the servant of the Lord. This is his attitude. He is not to be obnoxious, he is not to be brash or authoritarian. If you're going to have a life well lived, it will not be by how much power you can yield a wield rather over people's minds to make them conform to your way. Can't change people. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. You can't change them. He goes on to say, lest God prevent your give repentance. Your spirit, your attitude of meekness, of not wanting to start a fight, of being gentle. All of that is illustrative of the fact that you know you're very cognizant of the fact you can't change them. So again, parents, teachers, anyone in, in authority, keep in mind you can't change them. You can't. Now, you you might demand and you may have persuasive abilities to get them to conform for a time relating to salary and position, relating to uh, things that may be lost, Your kids may be... Have something withheld from them, or other forms of discipline. You can get a certain amount of, but but, you know, if you live your life purely by that, if you if you govern your little realm purely in that frame, you know what's going to happen. As soon as they're not dependent on you anymore, they're gone, and they will do their own thing. And you'll have missed the bottom line. God changes the heart. You're just a servant. Servant of the Lord. You're not master, you're a servant. You're not above, you're under Christ. So you lay aside your feelings of anger, aggression, retaliation, hastiness, overbearing. They have no place. You're the servant of the Lord. So, these are some little reflections on a life well lived. Which is what we want to consider, as I say, in the weeks ahead. A life well lived. When I watched that funeral service yesterday, that Thanksgiving service, I thought about 56. Nowadays we don't expect to be gone by 56. We don't expect to hear news of disease and a few months later you're gone. And we don't want to be in that place where we're scrambling to try and make our lives count with the last few breaths that we have. How would your life look how ought your life to look if you honestly before God, and this is something you pray about, if, you're, if you are living in a way that is well lived? I'm not, not calling you to go to the mission field. am not saying that. I'm not calling you to arise and go into Christian ministry. That That's not, that's not it. The, the whole point of this actually is how this can be applied in every season, in every circumstance, that legitimately we can do for the Lord? How does it look if it's being well lived? That's, that's the call. Because Someday we'll be just a memory in the minds of a handful of people. What's that memory? His hers was a life well lived the Lord help us let's bow together in prayer I want you to be musing over this. I want you to be praying over how the Lord might teach you more how to live your life well. Just in general. Or teach me how to live my life well. God, we ask for grace and help to To take Thy word to heart and to embody the things that we have been taught, we ask for consistency and discernment. To be consistent in things we know and to discern yet those things that we are ignorant of, Lord. In this this little window, this little window in which most of us will only impact. Just a handful of people, and yet that's, that's all. That's, that's, that's our place right there in that little, that, that one cog in all the machinery of what you're doing in our present day. Help us to keep turning. Help us to keep doing whatever that is. So make us to know thy will and give us grace to follow through on it. And I pray that for old and for young, for those that are settled and for those that are presently unsettled. Help us to discern thy will for our lives that we may live them as a sacrifice to our Lord Jesus. Help us then forgive our sins and Go with us this afternoon and bring us back to worship Thee. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.